Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, January 22nd, 2014. This is episode 1285 of the Survival Podcast. I've got an action-packed one for you today. First up, I've got Stephen Harris on for about 15 minutes to talk about his mobile battery bank systems. Um, and the workshop that he and I will be doing, he'll be on for about 15 minutes. We'll talk about all the things that you can do with a mobile battery bank system. And if you can't get on down here and, and hang out with us for a few days and actually get a hands-on workshop, we'll tell you how you can get uh, the videos that show you how to do it as a DIY thing from Stephen directly. Um, and that'll be fun. And Steve's going to leak a little bit of information about what's coming. Uh, from some two new projects he's working on uh, for interviews on the show that are going to be, once again, Stephen Harris, blow-you-away things that you just will go, wow, how has that not been part of our preps up till now? So uh, you hang on for that. And then when Steve's wrapped up, we're going to have Chris Starr. Uh, Chris is a falconer. He's a guy that lives local to me. Uh, there's been some video I've released of his bird. Um, he's a guy I talked about out in Louisiana. They, he went out hunting and got a cottontail and a, and a, and a gray squirrel. And uh, I was the campfire cook and cooked uh, falcon, killed gray squirrel, and rabbit over the fire. And uh, we even had rabbit liver cooked inside the rabbit, which was pretty good. Josiah was unhappy because we didn't notice it until he put it in his mouth, but his liver had a piece of gallbladder attached to it. Uh, given the liver was cooked inside, I had I didn't really even check on it when I cut the liver up into pieces. So Joe got gallbladder, the rest of us got good rabbit liver, and one person with really weird taste got gallbladder too and liked it. You got to be something wrong with you like gallbladder. Anyway, I'll have Chris on, Steve on just in a minute. Let's first go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day number one, KnifeKits.com. Man, look. Making knives seems really difficult. It's not. Not if you go to knifekits.com. You can get a kit, some handle material, book in a DVD if you don't know what you're doing yet, and figure out how to do it. And if you've gotten good at it, and you want exotic handle materials like the camel bone, Patrick Rorman is doing in his new limited edition knife called the General, which is going to look just like my mammoth tusk knife, uh, with a little bit thicker handle and made out of camel bone. So camel bone you can get from knifekits.com. Damascus steel you can get. Mammoth Tusk you can get. KnifeKits.com. And remember, if you're a member of the MSB, they give you a discount on everything that you buy. Check your benefits section. Next up, Backwoods Home Magazine. The, 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 it was kind of my go-to source for information years and years ago when I had first gotten out of the Army. And I moved to, uh, to Louisville, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. And all of a sudden, I was surrounded by this massive city. And I was a country boy that grew up, you know, in the mountains of Pennsylvania hunting deer. And it was kind of my getaway uh, back to a simpler time. And a lot of the stuff I talk about today, some of that foundational knowledge, came right out of great authors like Jackie Clay, Masad Ayub, Dave Duffy, John Silvera. Guys that write for that magazine still today, and now I get to work with them. So it's kind of a cool thing for me. They also have a special incentive for first-time subscribers to their magazine. You can find that in the Members Support Brigade. Check it out uh, in the Members Support Brigade. On the Members Support Brigade, our discount uh, vendor feature of the day 
It's uh, Doom and Bloom Survival Medical Supplies. Dr. Bones and Ace, Nurse Amy are good friends of our family and of the show. Um, they have an incredible website when it comes to medical prep. Um, the kits were put together by uh, Bones and Amy and assembled by Amy in a very specific way that Bones apparently is no longer allowed to touch the assembly because she has everything down to exactly where every item needs to go in these kits. The, some of these kits are, you know, 50 bucks. Some of them are several hundred dollars or more. Uh, it just all depends on how intensive you want your med preps to be. And uh, they do a 10% discount off for our audience. So on a larger kit, that one discount alone could pay for your membership. On that note, do consider jo joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. And you'll get discounts from 40 awesome vendors like Backwoods Home Magazine, uh, who's one of our sponsors today, um, like Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, and like KnifeKits.com. I mean, those are just all three great discounts. Uh, you can find out more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members, uh, where you'll see how to sign up there. You can pay by uh, PayPal online. Cash check money order or silver offline if you want to send us a form. And we're working on setting it up so you guys like to use Bitcoin can uh, pay us in Bitcoin as well. Um, if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, or prior service, or a first responder like an EMT, a paramedic, uh, or a firefighter, again, active duty or prior uh, service, just send me an email. Tell me about your service. Just two or three sentences maximum is all I need. And I will send you back a discount code to uh, to join the MSB and get a great product and an even better price. Again, please do that before, not after you join. With that wrapped up, Uh, let's get into our history segment. I'm only going to read one of the things on the history segment for you today. The year is 1285, and Alex has sent me the following. More separation of church and state. King Edward I of England issues the writ of circumspect agetis that sets limits on the jurisdiction of the church's religious court and the king's common court. Until this time, questions of jurisdiction were tricky, But this is not judicial reform. It's locking what the church and state have been doing informally for some time. There are the, these are the years of English jurisprudence from which America will draw its baseline legal precepts. It may not seem like much, but America's founding will depend on little things like this. Alex's take on this issue is that in modern day, the United Kingdom and Europe have set aside government positions for clergy. This sometimes leads to misunderstandings between Europeans and Americans. An American professor once received a phone call from his European relative who asked, Who's the chief rabbi of Michigan? Most Americans will realize what a ridiculous question this is. It's like the equivalent of asking, What government agency is in charge of beer parties? The American government does not organize religion, but is different from ex this is different from exempting religious institutions from certain taxes. The power to tax is the power to destroy. So government must act judiciously when taxing religious institutions so that it's not using its power to oppress freedom of religion. The same goes for freedom of speech, where the recent IRS scandal is an example of the power to tax suppressing political speech. Conservative or liberal, when the government taxes people, to some extent it can control them. This is why a government should be limited in its power to tax. Yeah, um, I gave my thoughts on tax-exempt status and how it makes sense to do for certain things, why the Citizens Assisting Citizens Group is a 501c3, and we finally got our approval after a year, um, and how it, it makes sense to take advantage of 501 status. 
But I think that what we learn from things like that is the problem with 501 status, the caller that I was responding to, that wasn't wrong in that it gives the government greater control over what you're doing. They start giving like greater oversight, like are you really supposed to have this status? Um, and understand tax-free status is often really not for the organization. If the organization is indeed using its money for its operations and returning it to its community and things like that, most of the money they should take it should be tax-free anyway. It's more so that you can donate money and you can deduct it from your taxes. That, that's, that's one of the major implications there because if you think about it, if a church pays its, its, its pastors, for instance, then that's an expense. So the church isn't going to pay tax on that money anyway. If the church takes the money and builds a new recreation hall, um, the church is not going to pay tax on that money anyway. The, the, the key, though, also gets down to there's certain things the church might do with money that's considered a donation. They'll hit a cap on how much they can donate. So by being tax-free, they don't hit that status. They can do more with their money without having to explain where the money went and on and on and on. And this is an example of why instead of government should have its power to tax limited is government should not be taxing income. That's what I get out of this. And, and you know, I don't know that really what happened in 1285 leads us there, but Alex's take on that, that's where I go, that if we weren't taxing income, all of this stuff wouldn't matter. If we, if government has certain needs, it should be taxing consumption. And that's it. And nothing else. It shouldn't tax property. It shouldn't tax income. You're punishing success. If we tax consumption, then everybody shares the burden equally, and when government says they need more money, everybody equally turns to the government and says, make to the case to us as to why. Make the case to us as to why. Um, I also think that the separation here um, is important because we should not be we should not have nowhere near the size of government we do. But if you add religious religion to government, you get an even bigger government with more enforcement of your will on another human being, which is completely anti-libertarian. So. Um, There you go. That's what happened in uh, 1285. For more information on that, there'll be a link to the Wikipedia page on, for 1285 in today's show notes. Um, and with that, we need to get into um, kind of our main show. Let's start out with our, our lead-off, which is Stephen Harris, who's always just awesome to have on the show. He's going to join us today now, and we're going to talk about um, the battery backup system that, that we came up with together and that he designed, and the class we're going to be running uh, this February and how you can sign up for that and come hang out with us. And if you can't get to the class and you haven't gotten his videos yet, how you can get the videos so you can do this as a DIY project. And with that, hey, Steve, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Oh, I'm thrilled to be back, Jack. This is just for a short little intro for the battery uh, class we're having at your location in Texas. Well, cool, man. Um, we actually haven't had you on in a long time. Um, other than for your expert counsel questions, we haven't had you on in for an interview, but like a little teaser here before we get into this class we're going to be doing together, uh, we have you set up to do something really freaking cool like, oh, I don't know, you're going to fly back to Pittsburgh and the next day we're going to do an interview with you. Yeah, you are. We're going to do something. I'm going to be on the Survival Podcast in uh, late February and I got something really cool for everyone. I haven't been on for a year and a half, or about a year and a quarter. 
because I haven't had anything extraordinarily awesome. I mean, I covered all the subjects, all the major subjects, and it's like, I don't want to just come on and do a, you know, sit on the couch and talk with Jack. I want to bring you guys something really solid, something you can sink your teeth into, and uh, I got that. I got that in spades. Yeah, and I've seen it. I'm not going to tell anybody what it is yet, but let me just tell you guys, Steve, as always, has gone all out. Now, on All Out, the, this, this, this workshop we're going to be doing here in February um, started with an idea that I had that I approached you with about mobile battery banks. And you're like, I've done that already. And I'm like, cool. And I'm like, I'd like to make it a little bit more organized. And I'm looking for something to isolate the charge. And the next thing I know, you put together this amazing three-video series. And one of them was on mobile systems, and that's the primary thing we're going to be talking about is basically turning a pickup truck into a rolling power station. You want to tell folks, like, how that actually works? Yeah, you're talking about the video I have on uh, battery1234.com. It's four and a half hours, and it shows you how to build a uh, home battery bank or a mobile battery bank. And I, I do it all with still frame photography because I like it because I can mark it up and circle this and put labels on things. And it takes you through it step by step. But, the, but so many people wrote saying, I want to see you do this. I want to see you do this, that we decided to have this class. And what the mobile battery bank is, is we take a truck toolbox, and we put it in the back of a pickup truck. And this could be a, a small plastic one that fits between the rails, or it could be a big one that goes over the rails. And then we put a heavy wood frame in it out of 2x12s. And then into this, we drop two golf cart batteries. Okay, two big GC2s from Sam's Club, and these are solidly mounted for safety, and we put a large inverter, 1,600, 2,500, 3,000-watt inverter onto the lid of the box. That way, it's always rainproof. You can just lift up the lid a few inches, and you can plug in. It's got airflow, or you can lift it up all the way and get access to everything. But we've put in a special charger in there, and it charges the batteries in the back only when the truck is running or when it's at idle, won't ever drain the, the batteries in the front of the truck. So every time you start your truck and you drive it, you're going to have a 100% fully charged battery bank in the back of the truck ready to go. Yeah, it, what I really love about that is that most people use their vehicles frequently. And once you have this set up, it's kind of a set it and forget it thing. So at that point, you're making sure your batteries are topped off all the time by doing what you're going to do anyway. If you need them during something like a power outage, they're there. If they get low, you fire up the truck. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of flexibility beyond that, right? Oh, huge, huge. This is a 100% complete power system. It's sitting there ready to go, always charged. You never have to worry about being drained. It's ready to go all the time for your bug out location or wherever you drive. You can have 3,000 watts of power. Now, I have a show, um, I have the show coming up in February, but I got this, and it's going to be awesome, but I got this bigger show I've been working on for over a year. And I don't know if I'll get it on Jack's show in this summer or this fall or whenever, but I'll give you a hint. Um, it's on water. And this is one of the things that most people do not have enough of in their house or store it away. Right, Jack? Absolutely. Okay, Absolutely. So because it's, 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 it's heavy and it's bulky and you can only store so much. But a lot of us have water near us, like in the pond, a lake, or a stream, but it might be a few miles or five miles away. 
Now, I've already showed you in the fuel and fuel storage class on solar1234.com how to store all the gasoline you could possibly want so you get more gas than everyone. So are you in a disaster? Are you really getting thirsty? Do you need some water for hygiene? Drive your truck to a clean lake or a river and fill up four 55-gallon drums with the power system in the back of your truck and a $50 sump pump and a garden hose. It's that simple, people. You take an extension cord, you plug it into the little quarter-horsepower sump pump I have on solar1234.com. You put your garden hose on it, you drop it down into the lake or the stream or the river, and you put it into your 55-gallon barrel that I tell you to get off of Craigslist for really cheap, and you sit there and go... And just humming is like, I got all the free water I want, and you don't. Okay? That is the power of a mobile battery bank. Okay? It's human labor. A quarter horsepower sump pump, that is four times the labor of you with a hand pump. Okay? A human being is about one-tenth of a horsepower for eight hours a day. So a quarter horsepower pump is literally doing the work of four men moving water into your barrel so you can move the water in there real quickly and you can scoot back out. You might do this at night. You might do it during the daytime. And just think how – if you we talk about barter on the show, just think, uh, I got water, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't advise that you, you, you actually phrase it that way, but your point's well made. And for people that are like, well, what about drinking? Well, there's boiling and there's, there's treatment. But if you, yep. st- you can probably store enough water for your drinking needs. A lot of times what you need is water to wash things for sanitation and things like that. But there's, there's plenty of ways to make water safe to drink as well. Another thing that you and I were talking about is we have a lot of people out there. They're going out and finding an acre or three or 30, you know, what have you. And it's their remote location. It's, it's a bug out location, but it usually has recreational purposes. They hunt on it or camp on it or whatever. And a lot of folks want to build a little off-grid cabin. Now, the beauty of what we're doing is you come to this class and you learn how to build this mobile battery bank. And then now we're going to show you how to tie solar into that. You could then go out to that cabin and build a solar system off-grid in that cabin, no problem whatsoever. Scale it up just about as large as you like because it's all the same components, just that larger scale. But what about building it? So think about you're in the middle of this off-grid location. You're going to build yourself a cabin. You haul your materials in. Well, now you can throw an air compressor on your truck and shoot nails and frame it. You can power all your power tools, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the advantages of that over being out there with a hammer banging on framing. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how many framing nails you've ever banged with a hammer. I can do it, but I, I prefer a compressor. Uh, and even if you don't own a compressor, you could rent one for a couple days, uh, and it is far worth it over hammeritis on your, on your, on your elbow. It, it, and the fact that you can run any size air compressor that they make basically off this system. I run, a, I run my great big, um, um, Bosch air compressor off of it. A full-size one with a cable as thick as your thumb that plugs into the wall. I run that off of my 1,600-watt inverter off of my truck. I'd still I'd recommend you get a 2,000 or 3,000-watt inverter to put on it. But just think, it takes about 30 seconds to put a nail there, go pound, 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 and you know get another one out. It takes this long. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that long to run an air compressor to put a nail in, and uh, you might be—I mean, you might be putting up a temporary bug out location. I mean, you might be going to Home Depot, filling up your truck with wood, and really bugging out with some uh, with some uh, plywood and some two by fours and some uh, uh, 
black tire roofing paper. I mean, you could do it, and I mean that that's that's the flexibility. Now, shooting nails. Uh, we also said you could run an electric chainsaw off it. Uh, you yep. and I are both fans of electric chainsaws. Um, I don't know how many times this thing would charge my uh, my Oregon power now saw, but a bunch, uh, even in between idlings of the truck. You, we, we both like direct plug-in chainsaws. Those open up roads for you. Yep. You're not out there dealing with a saw in a cold day trying to get a saw to fire up. And you don't have a yeah, big You and I both admit you're not going to go out and timber 40 acres with an electric saw, but for routine cutting and stuff like that, the power they offer and the convenience is amazing. Yeah, and you don't have the signature. You don't have... Yeah, yeah. I'm telling everyone that, like, I'm here, I'm cutting wood. I mean, it's really pretty darn silent with an electric chainsaw. It's the way to go. Yeah, my power now saw, my wife uses a weed eater that's louder than the saw. Yeah. yeah. Um, that's, that's saying something. And, folks, that's a saw to check out because it sharpens itself. That's... That's awesome too. But let's take it down to like, these are all high draw things that this can do. Let's break it down to pe- for people like, you know, during Hurricane Sandy, there were people that all they were trying to do is keep their, their tablets and computers and phones charged up because at least they could get cell signal and access internet and communicate and, and what have you. How many times would a 2GC2 uh, battery system, before you even fired the truck up, charge your average smartphone? Over 600 times. Okay, I think the power is going to be back on, or you're shooting zombies at that point. Yeah, you're shooting some, but guess what else you can make with uh, the battery bank in the back of your truck, Jack? Tell me. You make coffee. Oh, I guess you could. You can make coffee. It's it's a high enough powered system that you could do it. Yes, you could, and uh, that's I'm not a coffee drinker, but people write to me all the time, like, oh, I went by Starbucks and they had an hour and a half line for coffee, and I made mine in the morning and off of my truck and inverter and everything else, and it's like. (laughs) You can charge up all the phones in your community, people. Really, you can just put power strips in the back of your pickup truck, put it in your garage. You can have everyone come over. Uh, I mean, one guy during uh, the last freeze we had, he told me he was charging up cell phones for eight of his neighbors simultaneously. That was just off of a home battery bank sitting on in his kitchen table. Um, you want community. You want people coming over. Hey, they might have toilet paper and you don't. Yeah. You yeah. might be trading a roll of toilet paper for charging a cell phone. That's a pretty darn good deal. And they're going to come over and they're going to see what you got. And it's looking, and it could be a battery sitting on, on, your, on your kitchen table, um, a marine battery, or it could be your old truck. And they go, that's neat. That's cool. And they go, can I have one? You go, you betcha you can. <laughs> and you send them over to battery1234.com, and they get the complete instructional on how to do it. And then you're prepared. Then your neighbor's prepared. Then another one's prepared. And uh, I just got done running mine at 20 below. I was out freezing my fingers off, taking pictures of mine running it at 20 below. But, I mean, there's this huge flexibility with this unit. Okay, let's say your neighbor has a dead battery. Okay, all you need to do is plug in an ex- extension cable into yours and run in your 100-foot extension cable over to his car or 200-foot extension cable. And you plug in a charger, which I recommend you have going in the back of the truck, you know, just a pickup in your hand, 30-amp charger. And you go over and you charge his car for 15 minutes and then you start it you don't need to move your car over there and hook the cables up and go bumper to bumper and everything else especially if, when he's got his car pulled into his one car garage with the front end of it up against the wall yep. you're not out there now especially if there's ice and snow winches when batteries die right pushing his car onto the downhill driveway out of the garage trying to get your i mean the, the convenience of being able to run ac 
Yeah. Because now the distance limitation's not there, and I don't need, you know, cables that I can wrap around somebody and drown them in a lake with to be able to run, you know, 20 or 30 feet. I can throw a, a standard, you know, 100-foot uh, extension cord in there and, and, and dump that power wherever I need it. That's right. It gives you mobile power. I mean, you can run a 1,000 feet to get some extension cables and get power there to it. Let's say the batteries in the front of your truck die. Well, you can clamp extension cables on the back of the, the batteries in the back of the truck and run to the front of your truck and jump your truck. You can do the same thing. You can run the inverter to a 30-amp charger to the front of your truck, and you can jump up the front of your truck. Let's say the charger died going to the back of the batteries in your battery bank. You can take you know, your spare 750-watt inverter that I tell you to have, put it on the front of the truck, put the charger on the 100 10 volts in the front of the truck, charge the batteries in the back of the truck. Okay? Yeah, I think people might lose that, but let's let's say you'll 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 understand it all if you come to this class. In, in fact, you'll understand that if you get Steve's videos on this and you want to do it yourself. But what we're talking about is two is one, one is none. Uh, we're talking about like six is the kicks here because no matter <laughs> what fails, as long as one side still works, right? Yep. There's yep. a way to get that energy. Back to the other side. You can run inverters off the front. You can run inverters off the back. You can recharge from the front, or you can recharge from the back. You can power to your neighbor's house from the front and yours house off the back. Um, it's just absolutely unlimited number of combinations. The Matrix is like 12 things versus 12 things that you can do with this, and it gives you ultimate power and ultimate flexibility, and you can sign up for it. Where is it on your site, Jack? Um, it's on the main website. It'll be in today's show notes. Uh, the, every every show we do right up until we close registrations, it'll be in the show notes for every show from this one forward. And this, uh, is, this is not a PowerPoint. This is hands-on. This is every. This is hands-on. Yeah, I want people to understand that. Like, there's going to be very. There's going to actually be some some bonus PowerPoint stuff uh, because we know we can get it all done in three days easy um, with these three three project vehicles. So I'm going to do a bonus thing on home brewing and on cover cropping for people that are interested in that. But there's going to be very little PowerPoint in this. We might have some downtime where people are asking questions. You pull some up. But this is going to be morning one, eat breakfast, safety briefing, pull the trucks in, up the hoods go. The boxes are, are going in the back. We're building. We're making this happen. Um, and that, that, that when you leave, Steve and I are basically going to say this is how you do it and, and, and help you do it. We're not going to do it while you watch. You're going to do it, so when you leave, you'll have the confidence to build these systems. I really think if somebody built a really nice system like this that was looking for a part-time income and just started driving around and talking to all their buddies that have pickup trucks and going, let me show you this, mm-hmm. that you could be installing these for probably twice cost yes. for people yeah. that don't want to do it themselves. Yes. And yeah. frankly, this isn't hard, but people have a fear of electricity with good reason, uh, nobody wants to, even if you don't get really hurt, melt all the insulation off of wiring in their vehicle or something like that. And one of the biggest reasons we're doing this is to install confidence in people that they can do this type of work. Yeah, you could start a business doing this for both home and mobile battery banks. And we're going to have a home battery bank at uh, Jack's class as well. Yeah, I've got one with four batteries in my closet. If I lose power here before I start running generators over this side of the house or whatever, I just unhook all my computer peripherals and plug into it. It'll run it for a full day, um, plus other things off it. I'm going to just disassemble that, bring it all out of components into the uh, into the garage, and we'll reassemble it there. And it's really easy. Um, I think that if anybody that sees that, when they look at it, they go, why haven't I built one of these? Oh, it's um, so easy. And then we're adding solar. You, you kind of pushed me into doing that. I think it's a good idea because I was telling people it would be easy to add solar to this. We said, well, why don't we just do it? We're doing it. So that. we're going to add solar to this. 
I do want to point something out going back to a bug out location, though. So check this out, Steve. So let's say you build your little off-grid bug out cabin, and you set it up with solar panels on the roof. They're up there on the roof. They're kind of secure up there, especially if you do them where they're not real obvious. Yep. But inside your house somewhere, you have a bunch of batteries. Yep. Now, if somebody finds it while you're not there, breaks in and sees a bunch of batteries. Yep. There's a big possibility that they're going to take those batteries and all that stuff away and make you sad. Yep. Where, if you have this in your vehicle, when you arrive at your location, you basically hook your cabin up to your vehicle. Yep. And it's going to be really hard for someone that finds your BOL to steal your batteries when they're locked in the back of your pickup truck 250 miles away in your garage. You got that right. And, I mean, that, to me, the flexibility you start to have there. Or, let's say you think everything's secure. You do the best you can with it. You do have a battery system in addition out in your bug-out location. If you get there and it's stolen, you're probably upset, but you still have power. If you get there and it's not stolen and it's in place, the vehicle offers additional power to the system. I, I, I really don't think that something like, let's say, a solar generator can compete with this. Oh, solar generators, there's no, really, there's no such thing. And, and those, <laughs> those are such a rip-off. I don't even want to go into it. And <laughs> we show you how to make your own for, for one-fifth, one-sixth, one-tenth the cost. It, it's a big scam, people ripping you off. Uh, for those of you interested, the class is going to be Thursday, February 20th, Friday, February 21st, and Saturday, February 22nd. Just well, so cool, you- man. Um, I, I really appreciate you coming down here, Steve. I know that it's, 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 it's a big chunk out of some, your life when you have to travel. I've cut my travel back majorly because of it. So the fact that you're willing to come here and work hands-on with students in this, let me just say you know, thank you. And frankly, Steve, let me say thank you to you for what you do for this community as a member of the Expert Council. Uh, I love all of our council members. There is no one that takes the role more seriously, works harder, and puts more research into an answer than you. So thank you for, for all you've done for TSB. Oh, you're welcome, Jack. It's really it's a labor of love. It's a pleasure. I love your community. I love what you're doing. It's, it's so nice to be you know, one spoke in the wheel of this wonderful thing. All right, man. I appreciate you being with us again, and uh, I'll let you get back on with things. And uh, next up we have uh, Chris Starr on Falconry. All right, so with Steve out of the, uh, gone out of the way, with Steve uh, gone for the day now. Before I bring Chris on, I um, I wanted to just say I really meant what I said to Steve at the end of that. That he really is an incredible asset to this community. He spends a lot of time on Zello talking to folks, and and if you could get an opportunity. Uh, to get down here and work hands-on with Steve, please consider doing it. We, uh, we're not getting the number of registrations for this workshop that we typically do. I know that there's quite a few people who are aware of the Food Forest workshop we're doing the following month that can't come to both and really are excited about that one, and that's probably hurting. It's February, so it's cold, and you know, less people want to camp, and that adds maybe the expense of uh, a hotel. But I said this yesterday. Uh, this is something I want people to take advantage of if they can, and if they want to learn how to do all the, cra- the incredible stuff we just talked about. If you cannot handle the full cost of this event in one lump sum, with the you know the the total due on arrival, it, send me an email directly. And I, I can't do it for everyone because there is an upfront, a huge upfront cost to running these things. Um, but I will work with you know a few people here and there and, and set something up like you know. 200 on the day of the event and 200 next month uh, to make it a little easier to absorb if uh, if a few people maybe need to be able to do that to get down here for this. Um, 
Get to an event this year if you can. I'll say that, whether it's this one, whether it's the Food Forest one, whether it's uh, the Bee Workshop we'll do uh, near summertime, early summertime with, uh, you know, late spring uh, with Michael Jordan. Uh, the events are amazing. The interaction with other TSP members are awesome, and I'd love to see you here. And uh, with that, I'm ready to bring on our special guest. I want to say, hey, uh, Chris, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thanks, Jack. It's great to be here. Hey, uh, you're on to talk today about falconry and hunting with falcons. And, you know, I've actually had you out to my place. I was out at another place where you had your bird hunting. It's an awesome, awesome, awesome thing. Um, but could you just start out with instead of what it is and how do you do it and what have you, how did you end up as a falconer? And, and with that, kind of tell people, like, you have, like, a dream job. Like, you actually do this for a living. So so how do you go from being, like, a guy trying to figure out what he wants to do with his life to being a professional falconer? All right, well, it started out um, when I was very young. My dad uh, said, hey, we're going to go out and watch Grandpa something, something, you know. I'm like, what? We're going to go out to the field. I'm like, oh, okay. So we drove about five minutes from his house, and um, my grandfather was out in the field, and he was already started doing whatever he was doing and he was swinging something and we get out of the truck and we go walk over there and like what is he doing he's swinging something he's looking up and looking up and then this blur just blows past him like what was that and then i look up and i'm following something and it's a bird and he's swinging and swinging and it stooped at his lure which is what he was swinging um and it just goes back and forth and back and forth it was and what he was doing was strengthening the bird and training the bird to come to this lure, getting him fit for the hunting season. And, I mean, I was like six or seven years old at the time. I'm like, oh, that's it, you know. <laughs> I'm done. I'm hooked. <laughs> and so at a very young age, I was introduced to falconry, and I knew that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So I'm a third-generation falconer. Um, my grandpa does it every year, and he breeds um, large falcons up in the state of Washington. My dad is a falconer in Biloxi, Mississippi, and I myself live in, in uh, Dallas, Texas. And uh, so now about my job, I'm a professional nuisance wildlife control operator, and so we handle everything, uh, you know, every kind of wild animal you can think of. But in some instances, falconry does come into play where we have, say, pigeons in a warehouse, um, and so we, we take the trapping um, Bastard of that, where we do trap some of the pigeons, but, you know, that doesn't get all of them. So at night, what we'll do is we'll come in with our Harris's hawks that we use and shut all the bay doors to this warehouse. And so that basically locks the pigeons in, and we put uh, multiple hawks up in the warehouse, and they chase and catch the pigeons. And so, you know, that is removing some of the pigeons, and then it's also reinforcing in the pigeons' mind, like, this is not a good place to sleep and live. Yeah, I imagine in the morning, like the ones that didn't get killed, or in the, when the warehouse opens, are like, "I want to get the hell out of here. This is <laughs> this is a bad, bad place." It is. They're gone, you know, <laughs> and um, and so it forces them to sleep elsewhere and you know get the job done. Awesome. Um, so unlike a lot of people who I have on the show that are like, what do you do now? You know, I'm a professional wilderness consultant or whatever. And you, you know, they, it's not like they grew up like dreaming of doing that. They take this crooked path. You really like from the time you were a kid, uh, like knew this was something that was going to be a big part of your life. 
Oh yes. I mean, as soon as as soon as I saw my grandpa flying that Falcon, I mean, it's just it's solidified in me that I'm going to do that um, till the day I die. You know, um, and so I just what was it, three years ago became a permitted falconer to where I can uh, you know trap and own my own bird. Um, but you know, growing up, I've always been involved with falconry. And, my dad's hunt and uh, helping my grandpa raise and train falcons up in Washington. And, I mean, it's, just, like I said, it's just something I'm going to do till the day I die. Can you talk about, like, what you just mentioned, you know, trapping birds and all. Um, what it takes, actually, to be able to do this. Like, if I want to be a fisherman, I can go buy a boat and a pole. If I want to be a hunter, I can go out and get access to land and a gun. Uh, and I can just purchase that and a license and go out and do it. And there's not really much that has to be done hunting. There's a safety course you have to take if you're under a certain age or whatever. But otherwise, it's it's pretty simple. If you want to do it, you just go do it. You can't just go out to like, you know, and it's probably a good thing, like, you know, Falcons are us, and buy a freaking Falcon and then just take it out and tell it to go get stuff. You you have to go through a process, not just to learn the trade, but to even be able to to do it legally. So could you talk about what that process is like? Yeah, for, for people who are interested in falconry, the first thing I tell them is, all right, you know, hook up with some local falconers in your area and go hunting. You know, go see it in action. I mean, for you know, it pretty much solidifies it, and everybody like, oh, my gosh, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> but, you know, some people, they can't take um, the end result. You know, falconry is defined as the taking of wild game with a trained bird of prey. And so the end result is the death of animals. And so that, you know, some people fall out because of that. Um, but if they're down, you know, they're like, all right. So on to step two. Step two is acquiring study material, books, um, reading online, joining forums, and talking to falconers and stuff like that. You have to pass a state-given exam. Hey, this will, your uh, audience will like this. The federal government is now totally out of regulating falcon it is now up to each individual state which i love because that sounds so <laughs> much more reasonable than than somebody in washington who doesn't know what a falcon is telling you how to do yeah. this i was um i was permitted when it was still um, under the federal government so i'm permitted federally and by the state of uh, right now louisiana I'm in the process of being transferred to texas so step number two is study and pass your state exam um, as well as get a sponsor, and that is a general or master falconer who agrees to take you under their wing and sign off saying that they will teach you the ways, you know, the ins and outs of falconry for the two years of your apprenticeship. Step three is to build your muse. And a muse is a minimum eight by eight by eight enclosure, a chamber that the, that your bird of prey lives in. You know, it can uh, move around inside of the chamber um, and sit, and that's where it sleeps and stuff like that. And so then you have to have that muse inspected by your state biologist. And once it's inspected, I sign off. All the paperwork is complete. They push all their stuff through on their end, and then you get sent a, an apprenticeship permit, and then you can go out and trap your first bird. You know, what really struck me the first time you explained all this to me was that you went out and trapped a bird. And you hear so much about 
most birds of prey anyway being very, very heavily protected through legislation and the habitat needs and, you know, you can't touch one. If you look at it the wrong way, you're going to go to a federal penitentiary or something like that. Yeah. And, and, and to, to me, the concept that you would go out and actually trap a bird seemed very counterintuitive to conservationism, that it would be better if we were captive breeding birds and things like that. But you explained some things to me about how misguided that view is. Could you explain that to the audience? Yeah, sure. Um, what, how I'm going to explain it is um, and sort of uh, how it was done in the old days. You know, I, get, I mean, I can't really say the old days, only a couple few years ago, but um, before the each state had its own legislature on it, um, you could only trap a an American kestrel, which is a very small falcon, or a red-tailed hawk. Now, it, that varied in a couple states like Alaska. You can't find the kestrel, but they were still falconry, and there's a few other species you could acquire then. But back to my original point. Now, these red tails, of all the babies, only 10% live to see sexual maturity. That means 90% of red-tailed hawks die within the first two years of their lives. So taking and trapping one out of the wild, you're basically, statistically speaking, you're saving its life. And so that's why um, trapping it is they don't really have issue with that. And then also, you know, like you mentioned earlier, you know, back in you know, 1000 B.C., people couldn't go to Falcons R Us and just go pick up a bird. You know, they had to trap it, you know. There even were captive breeders back then. Um, but, you know, going out and trapping your first bird, it really makes you have an appreciation for the history of falconry. Um, it gives you experience with a completely wild animal who at every second thinks that you're going to eat it until it's properly manned down and trained. And so, I mean, it just makes you a better, uh, makes you a better falconer. And plus, I mean, Trapping is just so much fun. It really is. <laughs> it's awesome to get out there and see different birds and sizes and colors and stuff like that. Well, and on, on that note, when you talk about trapping, so I think that people would think of maybe like you know, you're raiding a nest or something. These are birds that are already f- flight-worthy. They're kind of out doing stuff. They're trying to, to earn their chops, so to speak. They're young birds. Um, and, and so this is a bird that is old enough to – like you said, already thinks you're going to eat it or hurt it in some way, and you have to earn its trust. But I think the other side of this, he explained to me, that I didn't really get, and it's probably because of so many Disney things when we were kids growing up, for us Gen Xers of, you know, born free in the wild and stuff like that. There's this belief that, like, you take a wild animal, and you bring it into your home, and you take care of it, and you have it live with you, and you earn its trust, that, okay, now that animal has to go through some major ordeal to be able to function in the wild again. And I never really thought about birds, but I know this is true from my background with reptiles. A snake is never tamed. It's never trained, and it never loses what makes it a snake. And if you take a snake that was even born in captivity and has been there for five years and put it out in the woods, so long as there's sufficient habitat and prey for it, it will go on and do what a snake does and and, and live, as they found out with boas and pythons in the Everglades, mm-hmm. uh, thanks to Hurricane Andrew. That, that's a big, we won't go deep into it, but I know you're big on you know not blaming the animal for the, or even blaming the keeper for what happens from nature, but that was Hurricane yeah. Andrew that did that, not keep people just throwing boas in the Everglades. But anyway, a snake just goes back to being a snake, and birds... And reptiles have kind of a common ancestry, and birds are a lot more reptile-like 
they're a little higher on the intelligence level, but I don't guess that a falcon that you'd put through this process that's out hunting, it's like a parrot living in a cage, really loses that. And as you were explaining, your first, you told me anyway, your first bird, you ended up releasing it, right? Yes, I did. Um, and uh, I mean, it was just whenever I went to release it, it was just as wild as the day that I trapped it. Um, that process of releasing it back to the wild included um, a couple months of very minimal interaction with the bird, just feeding it, getting it back um, and fat, you know, because when you trap it, they're very, very overweight to what you need to do with them in falconry. You know, falconry is based upon um, trust consistency and weight management. So the bird was very fat, and I mean, it took me 10 minutes to catch him in his muse, and then... He was looking at me like I was just like that first day one, you know, I was just going to eat him and I tossed him and flew 200 yards into the woods. So bye bye. <laughs> he was gone. <laughs> and because, and you do, but you do stop the, uh, the, 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 the hunting process for a while though, where they're not going yeah. up and being called back. So they get into this mode again of what? Oh, I'm free and they're gone. And I think that like part of it probably is challenging about birds is also an advantage. And that they don't have the memory that a mammal seems to, like, they, they forget shit. Like, they just don't remember. Like, when we put chickens in the coop that have to be introduced to the flock, we just go in there after dark and put the new birds, once they're big enough, in the coop right on the roost next to the other bird. And the chickens wake up in the morning, and they have a pecking order and all, but it's like, oh, you must have been here all along. It's not like you or me would wake up and go, dude, what are you doing in my bed? Exactly. The bird, you know, they were wild to start with. And even with captive bred birds, it, they know how to hunt. They know how to kill. They know how to feed themselves. They would be okay in the wild. Um, you, your first bird was a red tail. What birds have you worked with and trained? Um, whew, alrighty. Well, <laughs> so my first bird as a permitted falconer myself was a red tail hawk. Now I've worked with several different species of falcons um, for my grandpa. And right now we're flying um, a Jeer falcon, Staker falcon hybrid um, for a for an abatement job in Arlington, Texas. I've worked with Eurasian eagle owls, barn owls, um, Harris's hawks. That's, that's what I have right now with a Harris's hawk, and I work with several... Um, for my job and then for hunting. Um, our company is getting some American Kestrels next year for um, work with sparrows inside of uh, warehouse. And so I'm pretty excited about that. That's a very small falcon, so I'm excited to flex my muscles in that. And they're the fast as hell, too, those birds, the crestals. Yeah, yeah, they are. They're, really, they're so cute, too. I mean, I mean, shoot, they're only about the size of a blue jay, but... I had the same ferocity as, you know, an eagle, you'd think. <laughs> yeah, so how do you, I mean, so I think the average person has a hard time getting their head around this. You know, how do you actually train a bird? So if you have this, this hawk, I've set some sort of a trap. I've got this thing under my control now. I've, I've filled all the Barney 5 paperwork out, so I'm legal with the man. And I've got my mentor that, that's helping me out probably still at this point, And I'm getting ready to train this hawk. How do I train this thing without, like, the first time I let it go, it just doesn't fly? Like, okay, dude, uh, I don't like you, uh, so I'm going to leave, right? How do, how do I balance confinement with the need to actually train that animal to function and work? Where, where do I start? And then how long does it take 
from the time I have this wild bird to something that maybe it's not as tuned as it, it, it's going to become, but I can go out and hunt with it, and it, it, it knows its job, and it knows to come back to me. Well, um, how long it takes, it then all depends. I mean, there's a ton of variables. You can have a kestrel flying to your glove for food first day you track it. it don't, and But a red tail, it could take a month to two months. It all just depends on the size of the bird, how much food it was, was in its crop, how fat it was when you trapped it. Um, because, um, back to the training part, they have to be hungry to respond to you. I mean, you think about it. If an animal in the wild isn't hungry, why is it going to hunt? You know, there's no reason to. I'm not hungry. I'm not going to hunt. Yeah, you it's see it on, like, the Nat Geo stuff all the time. You see, like, a lion pride walking down to a watering hole, and there's, like, gazelles and zebras across those. And they're a little worried, like, what's he up to? But they don't all freak out. And, like, everybody knows <laughs> nobody's getting eaten right now because they're not on the hunt. Exactly. And so what we do, the, okay, say back to the situation, you just trapped your first hawk, let's say red tail, because, you know, 90% of falconers start out with a red tail hawk. You you trapped it. You have it covered up. You know, it's either hooded or in a towel or something, so it can't see. You're very quiet. You put all of its equipment on on its feet and legs and get it all dressed up. And so begins the process of manning, and that is getting the bird used to yourself and man and everything that comes with that. You know, houses, cars, dogs, cats, weird noises, the television, and stuff like that. So. It basically just involves, you know, step one is just sitting with it on the glove for hours and hours on end. Um, my first red tail, I probably had it on the glove for 30-some hours um, straight from uh, day one that I trapped it. Um, and that was good for it. You know, the bird uh, later fell asleep and, and then woke up on the glove. That's called that's a process called waking when you wake the bird. Um, and he woke up, and I was right there, and he's like, whoa, uh, this guy didn't eat me. You know, he may not be so bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and he and gets so, the heart thing going, too, right? Well, I must have been here all along. <laughs> exactly. He's like, well, I mean, all right, you know. And so from there, once the bird is sort of used to you, he's starting to get hungry, right? You know, he, maybe he hasn't eaten in a day, two days, however long. You have to get him to trust you enough to eat because birds let their guard down when they eat. So step one is like getting it to eat on your glove. And to do that, the bird has to lower its head, expose the back of its head to you, not be able to see you, and eat from the glove. And that's a big deal because, you know, you turn your back on something in the wild and it kills you and you're dead. So getting it to eat on the glove is step one, and that's great. Boom. You got it to eat on the glove. So now you put it on a perch and you need it to jump off the perch onto the glove for food. And that's another big step because... Now he's not only eating with you around him, he's coming towards you to eat, towards this creature who a couple days ago probably would have eaten him, you know, in his mind. So you get him to jump to the glove. Awesome, you know, woohoo. So now you just need him to get to jump farther and farther. And now it's like a, a jump with a couple flaps. And then, and then he's going from 5 feet to 10 feet, 15 to 20. And some people with their red tails... 100-yard flights, when immediately called to the fist, you're ready to go. So what's kind of our next step then? So we've got this bird, so now we've got it to where if I take it out, 
uh, out of the control environment and take it out into the woods because you, I mean, one of the advantages you got, you hunt in places that no regular hunter could ever hunt because they can't get a firearm in or the police would be called or whatever. But I mean, these birds really could anytime they want to just take off and just leave there. And there wouldn't be anything you could do about it, but they don't. So kind of how do we bridge that gap to now where I'm trusting this bird to, to go out and try to get that squirrel and either successfully or unsuccessfully complete its hunt and then return to me. Is it still really a trigger on, on food? And we're using that lure thing again also to like remind them, Hey, I feed you. So come over here. Yeah. I mean, and once the bird is completely trusting of you and you're regularly hunting in the wild, what keeps him, you know, coming back to you is that he now associates you with him having a better chance of eating. You know, um, hawks in the wild are, are ambush predators, and they're very, very patient. You know, you see the red tails up on the power line or on the uh, you know, telephone wires just sitting there. You know, they'll sit there for hours, just waiting for the right time for the rat to show himself and then get eaten. Um, so when they stick with you, they know that they have a better chance of eating because you, like a little beagle dog, you know, you're running around in the bushes and the trees, uh, hitting briars and scaring out rabbits and squirrels and stuff like that. And so... The more they stay with you, the more they're going to eat, and that's mm. all they care about in their mind is food. So when you so take take us through this because this is another thing I think people have a hard time grasping. You've got your bird; these are pretty big birds, a Harris's hawk. I've seen your bird or a red tail, sizable, pretty good set of talons on them. Nasty mm-hmm. beak could do some pretty good harm to you if they wanted to. Bird goes out, kills a cottontail. You walk up and you'd like it to give you the cottontail, please. And, you know, you think of dogs that will take a, a finger off over, try to take a bone from them, and, and the bird's not quite to the level of the dog. It can be a little bit more reason with. How do you get this, you know, hard-won prize away from this bird who'd prefer to eat it? Well, that's that's a, a process that varies amongst other falconers, but, you know, being a third-generation falconer, um, my grandpa, the patriarch, we, the whole family listens to him and uh, goes by his guidance. So what he does is, you let the bird, for the first several kills, eat the the food. Okay, say red tail, cotton tail number one, he just caught it. Um, you let him eat that whole freaking rabbit, the whole thing. Okay. So now that's what's called being wed to the prey. So he's now wed to rabbits, which means I love rabbits. When I catch one, I get so much food. That makes me so happy. So he now try and catch rabbits as hard as he can. Um, and so after a couple times catching rabbits and letting him eat as much as he wants, you can start weaning him off, you know. What I do now is uh, if I'm hunting just one Harris hawk, because multiple Harris hawks is a whole other story, um, one Harris hawk, like say my bird catches a squirrel, I dispatch the squirrel, I uh, cut open the vitals for her, and she gets to eat the heart bones and the liver, maybe a couple ribs. She seems to fancy those. Um, and so that's just like a little boost, you know, like a little, say, like an energy drink for a person. You know, awesome, yeah. Got got a little snack. It rejuvenates uh, her from the energy that she expended trying to catch that squirrel. But it's not too much to where it doesn't make her too full to where we can't keep hunting. And so that's how I do it. Um, now, like I mentioned before, it's totally different when there's multiple parrot hawks. Um, just for the listeners, Harris the Hawks are the only hawk in North America that hunt in a group cooperatively, like a pack of wolves. Um, it's called a cast of hawks. 
And so when you're hunting with multiple of those, it's usually best not to open up the game. You just trade off the bird. Um, say catches say three Harris hawks catch a jackrabbit. Uh, you trade them off to some some little tidbits of meat off to the side. Like you, you put the rabbit in your game bag, so now it's gone. It's disappeared. They're like, wait, nothing happened, right? And so you feed them pieces of meat just as a reward. You know, um, you don't want to take the prey, and you know they get kind of discouraged if you do that. And so you give them a sizable enough reward, and you keep hunting. Very, very cool. So we talked about it a little bit, but can you talk a little bit about maybe some of the deeper history with falconry, how this was developed? I mean, you talk about some of the recent changes going from federal to state, but this is a very ancient, uh, I don't even want to really call it a sport, because uh, there is definitely sport in it, but it's really, on some levels, a subsistence level of hunting uh, in history. So can you talk a little bit about how it was developed and where it came from and how the things that you're required to do actually link you to the, you know, the falconers of old, so to speak? Yeah, sure. Um, now, to be honest, nobody really knows where it first came from. I mean, China's oldest inscriptions and, and stuff like that have them practicing falconry, and the same with uh, Saudi Arabia and all over the place. Ancient Japanese used God's fox to hunt pheasant. And so, it's, as far as we know, it's been it's been around as long as... Um, recorded history has been around. Um, Genghis Khan was a falconer. Uh, you know, it got huge in old England. I'm sure everybody, you know, you see all the old English movies or books and with them with the royal falconers and they go out and you know, catch stuff. And um, But like trapping from the wild, that's what links us to them. I mean, there's a bunch of really old texts. I forget um, there's a there's a French book um, that is called oh, in English it's called the art of it's called the art of falconry but it's like uh, very very expensive you know um, but it's the first written book on record of falconry how to do it you know how they were practicing it back then um, and uh, you know just how it's been going on for all these years. Fortunately, we've been keeping it alive through um, the, let me see, I think it was the, well, English, you know, they kept it up. As soon as the gun was invented, it, it dwindled a lot because, like you said, it was not just a sport, but a way of subsisting and, and catching food for the table um, for a long time. Then the guns were invented, and so it, it still stuck around for a while, but as far as really going out and feeding yourself, guns became the prominent source for that. But, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of enjoyment to be had in falconry. And so it stayed around for a while, immigrated to America. And so far here we have, uh, I think we have a couple thousand falconers here in the United States. But it's still pretty eminent in a lot of countries all the way around the world. Yeah, I mean, a couple thousand sounds like a lot, but it's really not a country of over 300 million. I mean, it's a it's exactly. a pretty niche environment. You guys are pretty evangelical with spreading the word to other people. I think what makes a lot of people, you know, hold back on getting into it is is a lot of work. I mean, you're basically living with this bird. And, like, some of the things I didn't know is how much time and effort you put into things like monitoring the bird's weight. They can be too light. They can be too heavy. You have to keep them right at that hunger level, but strong enough to be a good hunter. And and like that takes effort. That's that's not wipe the gun down and put it in the cabinet. 
But then you you have advantages again. Like I said, you can go into you know woodlots amongst suburban neighborhoods and hunt, and you can hunt at the time of year that I can't uh, hunt. You know. Yeah. Um, that's that's correct. Um, I mean, the bird, like like I mentioned earlier, if that bird is too fat, and all that takes with some birds is a couple grams, it's gone. You know. <laughs> Adios, he's off to Timbuktu. Um, with birds, my bird size, a Harris's hawk, she flies at about a thousand grams. Um, and so she can fly at say a thousand ten or nine hundred ninety, but she won't be as awesome at a thousand grams. That's um, crazy. Yeah, ten grams over, she'll be a little laggy. Um, she won't follow as close to me. She won't put in as much effort into the the, into catching a food because she's like, eh, I'm like that hungry, you know. <laughs> and so she might try, instead of going for a rabbit, try and catch a rat. She's like, I only need a little, a couple mouthfuls rather than like a whole big old rabbit. So I'll just catch this rat. And, and the rat's easier. So yeah, I got you. And so, and on the flip side, when she's low, she'd do the same thing. She's like, I mean, not 10 grams low, but say 100 grams low. She go, I, I, I gotta eat. I gotta eat now. You know, I gotta catch yeah. rats because I gotta get something in my belly. Yeah. But you know, you don't want them to catch rats. Rats aren't very sporting. Yeah, but they do provide some supplemental feed though, because you actually, you know, use some of the the, the capture here um, as food for yourself. We actually cooked uh, some rabbit and squirrel at the one workshop you came to and brought your bird to. Um, so yeah. kind of like that actually leads into like, how does this fit like? you know, a survival or shit in the fan scenario because, I mean, you're a prepper. Um, this is, it, it, it's not like you're a prepper, so you're a falconer. You're a prepper and a falconer, and the two work together for you. So can you talk about, like, how you actually can use these techniques and, and how you bring your dog into that? Because you hunt with a dog and a falcon, which is really cool. I've actually never had seen that before I met you. Um, and, and how this actually can be something that provides for you. Yeah, okay. So... I have what's called, like, yeah, I mentioned before, I have a Harris's hawk. Now, she is a medium-sized bird. Like I said, she hunts at 1,000 grams. Like you mentioned, I do hunt with a dog. Not a lot of falconers do all over the world, but a lot of them do hunt with a dog. It all just depends on what's your prey, what birds you're flying, what's your environment. I have, what is it called, a Decker rat terrier. He's sort of a large breed rat terrier. Um, weighs about 30 pounds. He's meant to hunt, and so um, when we're out hunting, he's sort of my ground guy, you know. A lot of times the squirrels, seeing the hawks are up in the tops of the trees, he'll bail out. You know, I'm out of here. I'm hitting the ground. He's going to go find a hole or something down low because squirrels will do that. And so whenever that happens, um, my dog Goten, he's on it, you know. He's caught lots of squirrels himself, um, and so I put those in the bag too. Now, as far as... um, producing supplemental food. I mean, as far as, you know, we go out and, you know, we buy food and everything from the supermarket and that goes into our preps. But um, if you have a big enough freezer, I mean, you want to talk about building some preps, falconry can build some preps. And, I mean, it's so much fun. You know, just like deer hunting, that's a lot of meat. And uh, throughout the season, most of the food goes towards uh, the bird in the summer. Um, in the summer... Um, right now, you know, in a, the, 
with the economy like it is and, you know, everything is normal. Um, the, we put our birds up for the summer for what's called the molt, you know. All birds, at least once a year, they drop out their feathers and grow in new ones. And so usually we fatten the bird up, um, we put them away, we don't really mess with them because it takes a lot of energy to grow and uh, to grow out new feathers. And we want those feathers to be perfect. So we don't really mess with them for about three months. Now, I know of people who do continue to hunt through the mold. And, I mean, you think about it, um, you know, wild birds don't take three months off, you know. So, But I know people who hunt through the mold. You just have to hunt them at a little bit higher weight. The, the feathers grow a little bit slower than if you just put them up and got them really fat. But it's really not that big of a deal. I know guys who they continue hunting. Like uh, in Texas, there's no rabbit season. And the guys hunt rabbits throughout year, you know, throughout the whole year. I kind of don't. I uh, take it off because, you know, I want my rabbits to um, reproduce. You know, I don't like taking um, pregnant females. Like right now, the squirrels are pregnant, and so I'm um, stopping my squirrel hunting now, focusing more towards rabbits than jackrabbits. But um, no, no biggie, you know. Absolutely. So um, let's talk a little bit about your dog. You know, you mentioned him, but your dog is the highest energy canine critter I've ever seen in in my life. I have uh, you brought him over here, and and my two dogs ran around with him uh, for a full day, and that night Max was literally dead to the world. Man, he was totally <laughs> worn out. You know, I got a hundred and thirty pound shepherd trying to keep up with your your dog. What 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 breed is that again? I know it's a rat something rat terrier, but I always forget the the type of rat terrier. Decker rat terrier. Decker. D e k e r. I love that. I love that drive, man. I mean, he's always he's always going. And then, and and oddly enough, you know, he, you'd think he'd be like wired at home, but he isn't. But that is because I take him out often. You know, five out of seven days a week, I'm hunting, so he gets couple hours of time to run and run and run and run and chase squirrels and chase rabbits and dig and, you know, get all of his energy out. And so at home, he's rather relaxed. Right now, he's sleeping in his crate and locked out while I'm on the phone with you. Um, but, I mean, when you get in the field, it's all business. He is, I mean, he'll, <laughs> he'll kill anything from pill bugs to we tried taking on a 37-pound beaver one time. I had to pull him <laughs> off of it before the beaver sunk his teeth into him. Yeah. Um, he was just a little puppy. They're high energy, man. I, I would tell anybody they're a great. He's a great dog, but um, this is not, not a dog for you if you live in the suburbs with a small backyard and you're not going to be able to take this dog out and work. And these are dogs that have a purpose, uh, and, mm-hmm. and that energy needs um, an avenue but um, I, I know a lot of people actually in the squirrel hunting community use them as you know traditional squirrel dogs, like like you would a Feist or a Jack Russell or a Kerr, yeah, yeah. where they use them for tree and squirrels, and they're really good at that. But um, they do require an outlet, uh, and I'd say that's probably true of anything in the rat terrier, fox terrier world. Yeah, rat terriers, fox terriers, uh, Jack Russells make good squirrel dogs, and, and then also rabbits, um, especially the short breed. Uh, Jack Russell because you know they can get in there. Um, the doxy, the dachshunds, then you know the weenie dogs that kind of the ones that haven't been muddled down that still come from hunting lines. Those are great, great dogs. Um, Jag terriers, that's a German breed. Those things are ferocious, man. They'll kill anything. Um, let me see. A few, a few people 
And this is something I'm quite interested in. Um, I know a falconer out in Albuquerque, uh, New Mexico, who has uh, lurchers. They're sort of a mix between a couple of long greyhoundish breeds, you know, Saluki, Afghani, stuff like that. He uses uh, two of these lurcher dogs to chase jackrabbits, and then they keep the jackrabbit moving for his falcon. Now, there's not a lot of people who hunt um, rabbits, jackrabbits, with a falcon, because falcons are almost all uh, bird-killing birds, you know, ducks, pheasants, grouse, that kind of thing. But he uses the uh, the dogs to chase the jackrabbit. Um, when jackrabbits are being chased by birds, they're very, uh, they like to zigzag and move and juck and jive and stuff like that. But the dogs keep them going in a straight line. And so that's what the falcon excels at. He gets it up to speed. He goes up, you know, a couple hundred feet and comes down and then spoops, spoops the rabbit. Uh, a lot of times just kills it dead and it just drops over and you've got your hunt. So, like, another thing I kind of wanted to cover with you is, is some of the stuff you, that that's done like that. Like, you were also telling me about how some of you guys get together and do, like, these hunts for jackrabbits and all with, like, multiple birds. Like, these birds hunting, like, like pack hunters. Uh, and as, I guess it's only certain breeds that are, are good for doing that. Mm-hmm, yeah. The, the one that's most common in North America for that is called the Harris's Hawk. Um H-A-R-R-I-S, H-A-R-R-I-S, Um They are a desert breed, or excuse me, a desert species. They're native to the southwest of the United States and North America, Mexico, um, New Mexico, Arizona, uh, west and south Texas, and some up into California. Um, these birds are honestly just about the perfect birds for falconry because they are already used to a group hunting environment. So it's really not hard to integrate a person and a dog into their cast, into their pack, you know, who hunts for them. And so I'll get together with uh, people from all over the United States and we have meets. Um, I'll hunt with guys from parasocks from anywhere, you know, and uh, they'll use their abilities to catch squirrels or rabbits or um, one of my favorites, jackrabbits. I'm going to hunt some jacks in, uh, in Waco this weekend. I'm pretty excited about that. Um, and so they'll hunt cooperatively, you know, like when you get a couple of Harris's hawks on squirrels, um, say you have three, the dominant bird will go up and take the highest perch above the squirrel, say they have a squirrel already in a tree, and then, um, there'll be a bird right on, right on the, the same, um, height as the squirrel in the tree, and then there'll be one lower. The top bird will, uh, make a move towards the squirrel, push him low. And then the bottom bird will push him back up the tree and they'll corral the squirrel, catch him, or force him to the ground to where all three can very easily overtake him. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's just an amazing sight. I love, uh, cats hunting with Harris's hawks. And, and like, it, so in the wild, do these birds then just pretty much tear that thing apart so everybody gets some, kind of like lions would, <laughs> or, you know? No, actually, they're more like wolves. Um, the alpha, the dominant female, that's, you know, she's number one in the in the crew. She'll have her um, pick up the prey and then the dominant male. And then it goes on from there. You know, the, the dominant female is the biggest and oldest female there is. And same with the male. And then it just goes down to the uh, you. younger and younger birds. 
So they really are like a flying wolf pack. <laughs> That's right. Oh, man, it's so much fun. So for people that are listening to this and they want to get started, you know, you kind of gave the whole thing about the, you know, finding a mentor and getting your test done and, and go hunting. But how do they find someone in their area? I mean, obviously, if they were in a DFW area, I know you love to take people out and give them their first experience with this. But, you know, not everybody lives in Dallas, thankfully, because I don't want everybody here. Uh, <laughs> but how would someone that wants to, like, just friggin' find somebody, find somebody to uh, to do this with? So uh, every state, or just about every state, has its own club group of falconers. So um, say you live in Washington, walk Washington falconers. Google that. Well, I happen to know that it's called the Washington, um, I think it's Washington Falconers Association. Um, and then there's like California has a telemon, Texas has the Texas Hawking Association. And every state should have its own little club. So find the club. On there will be a registry. Um, with some names and numbers. And uh, also, there should be like a, a link or something you can follow that says you want to be a falconer or to contact some falconers or something like that because, you know, um, we want to grow falconry. You know, it's actually in the United States, it's, it's dwindling. It, it really peaked in the 60s and 70s. And so now um, <laughs> our... Our group is sort of getting smaller and smaller, so I try as far as I can to bring more people into the sport who are dedicated, who are going to go out and hunt their birds and um, and share the message just like I am. Um, so you just got to find a group local to you, find your state club, get in touch with them, go out, go on some hunts. Like I said before, that's step number one. Go out and see if you know if you could do it, if you can hack it, you. Hang out with some of the guys, uh, falconers are always down to drink. That's one of our specialties. Um, so talk to them, learn about it. You know, like we, like we covered before, it is an everyday commitment. There's not a day that goes by where I don't weigh my birds. I don't measure out their food. I don't, uh, make sure like with Harris's hawks, they're very cold intolerant because they're desert birds. I have to bring them in on days where it gets close to freezing. And so, you know, it's an everyday thing. Um, so you have to make sure that you are up to the commitment if you really want to do this. I think that's the big thing. Like when I heard about this, I went, this is really cool. And then when I evaluated my life and how much I have going on in it right now, I went, well, this is a great thing. I want to see other people do it, but it doesn't fit my life because this other living being now depends on me. And I frankly, don't have room for other living beings to depend on me at this point. But I think for the people that want to do it, there's a lot of uh, desire from you guys to bring them into the fold. And like just yesterday, I did a show on on learning to hunt and, and conventional hunting. And what I pointed out is there's a lot of hunters out there. They'd really like to help you, but they have so much of a problem with finding access to land and things like that. They'll give you some advice and all, but they're not likely to take you to their spots because it's a closely guarded, you know, family thing or only certain friends and it takes a while to get into the fold because there's a lot of competition for what's available, especially when you look at public lands uh, and knowing oh, places yeah. to go on public land. But with you guys, you have such a small number. I mean, you have less falconers in the nation than we have archery deer hunters in Tarrant County, probably, right? You know, Tarrant County is not even a heavily hunted county in the, in the state of Texas. So 
there's not a lot of competition among you guys, and there's a lot of cooperative spirit and things like that. And I think in it, it, many instances it would be an easier thing to actually find someone that's really knowledgeable to share what they know with you because, you know, it's it's not just something anybody can do, and you know there's only going to be so many people that ever do this. And that's mm-hmm. that holds the growth down a little bit, but it also makes it a very welcoming environment from what I've seen. Yeah, and I mean, and the guys who are in it, we're a very close-knit community, you know, really good friends. Um, and like you said, you know, if you ever do meet a falconer, he's probably going to love to talk about falconry to you because it's our passion. You know, if we didn't have a deep, deep passion for this, we wouldn't be doing it. You know, we're out here every day, you know, making it happen, weighing the birds and taking care of them. So we love to introduce people to it and bring them out hunting and ah, so much fun. I brought some new uh, new folks out this weekend, and I think I got the... One or two of them absolutely hooked. <laughs> Found some new jack spots, so that's that makes me happy. Now, what you mentioned about the uh, the hunting spots, um, we are kind of we do kind of guard ours because um, you know sometimes a lot of farmers will not let gun hunters on, but mm-hmm. we'll let other falconers on. So whenever we find a new spot, we we kind of just share it with our really close falconers. Ah, got it. <laughs> yeah. Well, cool, man. Hey, I appreciate you b- being with us today, and uh, and I, I thank you for uh, for sharing this with uh, the audience. I know that you're not trying to build up a blog or anything like that. Uh, you just came here because you wanted to share this information uh, with the audience and grow the sport of falconry, dude. So I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. And if there's any uh, if there's any guys in the Dallas Fort Worth area that want to get in touch with me and go hunting, uh, shoot me an email at uh, a a a c s t a double r at gmail. Um, and shoot, we'll take you hunting as much as we can. The, uh, the season is sort of, I mean, like I said, there's no real season in Texas. That's one of the reasons I moved here. Um, but we are starting to slow down our hunting because animals are getting pregnant and we want uh, everybody to, uh, bump the populations back up. But, you know, we still got a good two months of hunting left and, um, I'd love to take anybody who wants to come out, uh, out with us. Very cool, man. Well, again, thanks for being on the air with us today, Chris, and uh, and I, I wish you well in your hunting exploits uh, over, you know, until your season really winds down. Yeah, no problem, man. I'll be back at your next spot bringing my birds. Yeah, man, come on over. We got uh, some stuff coming up in February and uh, in March and April, so you're always right, welcome man. to come by when we're doing stuff. And people always love seeing the bird. And with that, today this has been Jack Spirico today, along with uh, Chris Starr, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough. Or even if they don't. Seeing our food these days, you know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd